So um, when, I was, uh, when I was in my teen years, I did a lot of time at, at uh, church camp, spent a lot of time at church camp, specifically as a counselor at church camp, and uh, just, just phenomenal memories there. But one of the great things is being a counselor is you get to be part of the games that the kids are playing, only you get to win because you're the counselor. You're like four years older, and you just win everything. Um, and one of the games in particular that, that we loved to play was this game called Sardines. Now, sardines, I don't know if you've ever played it before, but sardines is basically reverse hide-and-seek. So it's instead of, uh, instead of you're looking for a bunch of people, it's only one person hides or two people hide, and they hide together, and everybody else is looking for them. And when you find them, you hide with them. Okay, so if you got 50 people, you know, two people go out and they hide, and then gradually, like, a couple more people find them, a couple more. It's called sardines because by the end, you've got, like, 40 people packed into one little hiding spot, and then, you know, there's, like, two people left looking for them. Well, one particular game of sardines just blew me away because nobody could find the people who looked. And, and honestly, it went on for like an, over an hour where people were looking for the two people that hit. And there's only so many places that you can hide in the boundaries. And they didn't cheat. And, and we're just like, it's nighttime. We're walking around. We're looking. We're looking. And I'm like, where are these two people? How did they hide? So I'm a counselor. This shouldn't happen. And I'm, I'm like looking and looking. And then I realized that the, the two people hiding actually never hit at all. They just walked around pretending to look for themselves. <laughs> and nobody caught on to it. They were just like walking around with a flashlight like, hey guys, how you doing? And nobody stopped to think, oh, those are the two guys that we're looking for. They were just looking for two people that were hiding. And so this just went on and on and on until eventually a couple of people realized it. And then it was like, eventually there's this group of like 40 people wandering around the camp looking. And there's two other people looking over here who... who couldn't figure out that that's the group. Wow. I thought, wow, man, what, a, what an incredible way. They really figured out the best way to play that game. They knew the rules. They knew the tendencies of people, and they figured out the best way. Well, when the book of Ecclesiastes is written, it's written from this perspective of, of what's the best way to sort of play the game of life? Like knowing all the ins and outs in life and knowing all the capabilities and all the things that life can give us and what it can't give us, what's, what's the way to play the game of life? And so we've looked at it a couple of weeks now. How, how do we deal with pleasure? How do we deal with wealth? How do we deal with life and with, with death and, and all these different things? And so this morning, we're going to look at it from really what is one of the key things for the teacher. It's how, how, do, how do we handle wisdom? Like, what role does wisdom play? Because as the teacher is chasing down all these things in life, trying to figure out what's the most it can give me, wisdom is one of the key things. I mean, that's the very present premise of the book, is to pass on wisdom. So let's, let's look at what he teaches in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. He says this, I saw also under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There once was a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built a huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a poor man, but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. So this 
teacher tells a story, whether or not it's something he actually saw or just a fictitious story to, to bring out his point, it, it, it's really quite a remarkable story of this, this small city and, and this great and powerful king, and he builds the siege works around it and, and over it so that it's just it's imposing. There's no way out of this, but in the town, nobody accounted for this poor man who had an incredible wisdom who saved the day. But at the end of the day, the man's forgotten. And, and so what, what the teacher does is he sort of, he says like, here's, here's the great, here's, here's what wisdom can do, how it can be so incredible, but here's what it can't do. Here's its limitations. And, and, and so he, he, the supreme value of wisdom, it's greater than strength. If you had to choose between being wise or being strong, he, he's, wow, wisdom would be, that, that's what you should choose. It, it's incredible. It's capable of saving many, many lives. But then there's the limitation. It's very temporary. It comes and it goes. And, and it's often unappreciated where this, where this poor man with this great wisdom is quickly forgotten. And so it's a sobering message, like most of the book, to, to say that wisdom has both benefits and limitations, that it's got its strengths, but it's also, like everything else in this world under the sun, it has its weaknesses. And so the teacher is saying, if you chase it down, if you get to the end of it, what you see is there's some good things about this, but, but it's not the greatest thing in the world. And so as everything else in this book, he's saying we need to see wisdom for what it is, not what we imagine it to be. We need to see it for what it is, not what we imagine it to be. So what is it? My kids and I, we've, we've been watching the Olympics the last couple of days. And if you haven't, like I just, I love watching the Olympics. There's something very competitive in me that I want to watch these things. And, uh, and my kids are just like cheering like crazy, even if I don't understand it. Like there's so many of these events that I have no idea what the rules are or, or what makes somebody good at something or not good. Um, I just know apparently like two mil like two tenths of a second is a really big deal in the Olympics for like everything. We were watching the rowing and uh, it's just fascinating. It was, it was the women's rowing. I don't know what the official terms for these things are, by the way. Um, I just, I'm a spectator. And we were just watching the, the women rowing and it was incredible to see like how they were just so in sync. It's like 10 women and all of the paddles enter and exit the water at the exact same time. They've got somebody sitting at front yelling instructions and, and it's just again and again and again. And I just wanted to be like, I wish one of them would be out of sync just to see what happened. Like just one lady starts to row backwards really fast. Or maybe she like rows like five times faster than the rest of them. Like what would happen? Like it, it, it wouldn't work. The whole idea is that everybody is in sync and it's happening together. In the book of Ecclesiastes, what he's doing is he's dealing with all these different sort of fragments in life and he's saying none of them should be the one that's rowing faster than everything else. It's gotta happen in sync. Wealth is a part of life, but it's not the greatest part of life. Wisdom is a part of life, but it's not the point of life, right? So, so, so all these different things are different components. Power is, yeah, that's something in life, but it cannot be the greatest thing in life. And so we say all of these things need to operate in sync and, and not get out of balance. What's interesting is if you were to go home and read the book of Ecclesiastes, which I, I surely would encourage you to do, there would be one or two things that tend to get out of sync in your life. 
One of two things that become more important and become, it's, it's like maybe for you, wealth is, is the person who's just like rowing like crazy and the rest of the team's looking at them like, you're actually hurting us. Your extra effort here is detrimental to what we're doing. Or, or, or maybe it's pleasure and it's just out of, maybe it's just a, a horrible use of time in your life and it's just, it, it's out of sync with everything else that's going, that's going on. So, so he's gonna say like, well, yeah, wisdom is a great thing, but it's, it just, it can't be the greatest. It, it's, it's one of the many things in life that's a blessing. So he, here's kind of what he says. He says, wisdom has its advantages, It has its advantages. It would be foolish to say that it doesn't. So Ecclesiastes 7 and 19, wisdom makes one person more powerful than 10 rulers in the city. Verse 11, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Right? it's It's a good thing. It offers us advantages. If, if you had one person who lived their life foolishly and one person who lived their life wisely, you would clearly be able to see the difference over the times and say, this person has a, more, has a life that's been benefited from wisdom. They've had security. They've, had, they've, had, they've been able to sort of navigate life in a way that this person has it. It's, it's got its advantages. In fact, you've got the whole book of Proverbs, which precedes this which is all about wisdom, where it's saying this is how you should live, this is how you shouldn't live, this is what makes sense, this doesn't. And he's offering us this perspective where wisdom is really seeing life as God sees it. It's seeing it for what it is. It's, it's got mountains, it's got valleys, it's got ups and downs, it's got pitfalls. It's got things that are gonna, that, that are gonna help you in life. And so, so wisdom is sort of like a captain at sea who sees ahead the, the, the different things that are coming and he, he learns to navigate them. Yeah, I think of like if, if there's a sea, there's a, there's a ship and there's a bunch of icebergs out there. Wisdom is, is saying, how do we chart the course? When do we begin to turn? How do we navigate it? How do we anticipate it? How do we adjust our speed? Wisdom is anticipating with everything that I've learned about the world, anticipating what is coming and navigating it correctly. And it typically works out in favor of those who are wise. And it's typically an advantage to live with wisdom. But I use the word typically because when it comes to life, there's no guarantees. You can be incredibly wise. You can be the wisest person in the world and somebody else can be unwise and take advantage of it. Or your health can give out. There's something else that you didn't see. There's no, there's no guarantee that wisdom is going to be the end all. It's going to keep you from every possible thing that could go wrong in life. You, you just can't prevent it. So I think what happens is sometimes we misunderstand the parts of the Bible that are wisdom saying. So you go back to the book of Proverbs and it says something like train your child when in the days of his youth and it will not depart from them in, in their old age. Oh, okay, cool. So if I train my kid well, he's going to do everything right the rest of his life. Well, no, that's, that's not how wisdom works. It's not a guarantee that child's still gonna make choices. They're gonna have friends that come into their life that counteract what you've taught them. They're gonna have experiences that are gonna change the way that they think about life. And, and so there's no guarantee. I think sometimes we struggle with wisdom sayings because we treat them like they're, they're, they're certainties, but the scriptures themselves, 
don't speak them that way. I mean, here you've got what I think is the same guy writing about the same thing, and he says, wisdom is meaningless. He says, wisdom is not gonna, it's not gonna be a guarantee. So we look at it for what it is. It has its advantages, but, but from the teacher's perspective, it's still, it's still hevel. It's still that thing that can disappear in the moment. It still can leave you without fulfilling everything it appears to promise because it's not a definite. It doesn't provide a guarantee because this is life and wisdom can vanish. And so that's why from the teacher's perspective, wisdom doesn't reach ultimate status. And if you've been tracking with us throughout the series, the whole idea is that, that only God gets ultimate status. He's the only one who isn't hevel. He's the only one who won't really let us down if we understand what he's doing and how he's doing. That this, at the end of the day, is all about him. Because everything else, it's eventually going to vanish. Look at what the teacher teaches in Ecclesiastes chapter two. He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly. Well, yeah, okay, so it has its advantages. Just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their head while the fools walk in their darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also overtake me. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. It's such a sobering message. This is, this is not what you would say to, like, to cheer somebody up when they're having a bad day. But if you think about this, this is, this is one of the wisest people to have ever lived, if not the wisest person, and he tells it like it is. And so for me, I appreciate that. Again, with the Olympics, uh, I was watching last night. It was the, the swimming, and um, they, they had, uh, I don't know if you remember from like 10 years ago, Michael Phelps, who was like the greatest gold medal winner ever in, in the Olympics. And, and he, was, he was on while they, were, while they were racing. He was like on the, uh, the commentary. He was helping out, and they were asking him questions about the swimming. I was like, this is incredible, man. This guy has such a wealth of knowledge about, about swimming. And I was thinking, like, if, can you imagine if you went to learn swimming at the local pool and Michael Phelps was there? I, I, would, just be, I would just be asking him everything. First of all, I feel like I'd be in really good hands. And then I would ask him like everything and every little thing he, he said, I'd be like, this, there's so much wisdom here. That's Solomon in life. And he's giving us this wisdom. And he's, he's saying part of wisdom is to understand what wisdom can do and what it can't. It cannot be the thing that makes your life worth living. It cannot be the point or it will let you down. Because even the wisest person suffers the same fate as the fool. And so we draw some conclusions then about what it means to live within the parameters of wisdom. What it means to live knowing that we understand wisdom for what it is, a benefit to life that offers us some security, that offers us some advantages, but not an ultimate status. And so, so um, really, really just two, two big things. Um, the first one is this, is don't be so obsessed with wisdom that you only take knowable steps in life. Don't be so obsessed with wisdom that you're only taking steps in life that are certain. If Ecclesiastes 7 and 14, when times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made 
one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about the future. See, wisdom is about navigating. It's about anticipating what is about to happen. But if we're not careful, what happens is we become so guarded by wisdom, so comforted by wisdom, that we don't step in areas that we don't see. We don't put our foot out in front of us unless we know exactly where it is and if it's a good choice for us to do this. We weigh all the pros and cons and we see all the advantages and disadvantages. And then if I feel comfortable, I'll step there. And the challenge is that Christianity isn't like that. That it's not about knowing everything and having everything make sense. It's not about a certainty and a security that these things, while good, also become enemies to what God calls us to in life where there are moments where we have to say, God, I trust you from what I don't see. See, wisdom by its nature has a very guarding side to it and a guarding side that will prevent us from actually having to trust God. Because I'm not sure if you've realized this, if you follow God long enough, what you'll see is that God will often call us to follow him in ways that contradict wisdom from a regular worldly perspective. He will call us to do things quite regularly that will be hard if a person is guarded by wisdom to follow. Scripture says this, my, God says, my ways are higher than yours. Are there are times when it just makes more sense for him than it does for us. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. See, what we have to realize that God has a wisdom that's above ours. And so there are times in life when he calls us to follow him that don't make sense. It doesn't make sense for me to, to, to try to reach one of my friends if it means that I might lose that friendship. It doesn't make sense for me to give in a place that he led me to give if it compromises my financial security because wisdom can counteract following God. It's this sort of paradox where, where God leads us to actions that from a worldly perspective appear to be foolish. To love a person who is in their filth. To love a person who has wronged us. To forgive an offender. Now, this doesn't really make sense. Wisdom says, no, it's not safe to give to the poor person who might squander it, to turn down a promotion, to have more time to, to serve. It's not easy. But really what happens is there's a greater wisdom. There's a greater wisdom that says that God is in charge of the steps I don't know. God is in charge of the things that I don't see. And if he's leading me there, if he's asking me to step there, then I have to, it's sort of this paradox where I've got I've to step where I don't know. And that's the wise thing. That's the wise thing. I remember very, very vividly when God called me uh, from one church to, to, to another and going through that transition in life. And it, it made no sense from a practical standpoint to leave a job that I enjoyed, to leave people that I enjoyed, to leave a location I enjoyed, for my wife to leave a job that she enjoyed, for my kids to leave their friendships, didn't make sense. But when God calls, there's a wisdom that's above mine. And I don't see it, and I don't make, it doesn't make sense, and there's an uncertainty. 
And there's this wisdom that can say, if I don't feel safe, I'm not gonna step there. And it guards us. And in the process of guarding us, it, it prevents us from actually following God. And, and so we can't be so focused on wisdom that we only take knowable certain steps in life. Because if our steps are certain, if they're always certain, they will seldom be great. Because God calls us to trust him. Lean not on your own understanding. The word of God is a light unto your path, a light unto your feet. I wish it was a spotlight that showed me everything in the future. That I could see distantly ahead, and that's not how God works. It's a step right in front of me. And it's not being so wise that I don't trust him in what I don't understand. Trust him to do the difficult things that seem to not make sense and even seem foolish. Because at the end of the day, he is greater than wisdom. Second thing, second thing comes straight from, straight from the, the teacher. He says, don't be overwise. Don't be overwise. I, that, that's not even my term. I can't take credit for that. That's Ecclesiastes 7.16, neither be overwise. Right there it is. Why destroy yourself? That, that, wow. That got, that got harsh in a hurry. Don't be overwise. Don't destroy yourself. Talking about this with Nick this morning, he, said, it's like, he says, don't be a wise guy. Yeah. He says, that's destructive to you. Whoa. Like, where did that, that, that what's he saying here? What, what, what's his point? His point is that excessive wisdom, a pursuit of excessive wisdom, has unwanted side effects. It can produce something within you if you're not careful. It can produce a pride that makes it difficult to be humble. It can produce a callousness that makes it hard to be loving, especially towards those who are foolish. It can produce a, a, a contempt that just wants to criticize those who don't agree with you and those who don't think like you. It can produce a laziness that lulls you into inactivity because you're too busy learning and not doing. One of the stories that I, I, I read, I can't, I can't remember who it was. Uh, it was long ago. Um, it was about a man who invested his entire life in translating the Bible from in Greek into English. Just decades of, of time in, up in his study translating the Bible from Greek to English, which sounds like a really good thing, except the, the fact that he spent all this time doing it, and it had already been done many, many times before by many other people. And so you ask the question, what advantage was it to spend decades on this intellectual endeavor when he could have been loving and serving, when he could have been out there with people? Don't be overwise why destroy yourself? This, is, this has long been a problem in the church. Long been a problem in any religion, really. The ability to be overwise, to figure it all out. The teacher saw it thousands of years ago. You look at Jesus, and who does he interact with regularly? The Pharisees, who are essentially overwise. You see it in the New Testament as you keep reading the letters to back and forth to different churches, this emphasis on wisdom and knowledge to the point where it becomes detrimental to the people who are around them. I remember growing up in the church and being around people who knew it all and were also the most unloving people. I remember going to Bible college when I got all this information and I knew it all and it started to change me. 
And it started to make me judgmental towards others. Started to make me argumentative. Started to make me critical. And God said, whoa, you're overwise. You're overwise. Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the messengers of, of, of God to the church in Corinth, he, he, uh, he writes about this in Corinthians. He says, be, be careful because knowledge puffs up. It, like, it, it inflates the pride. And it reminds me of like a hot air balloon. You ever see a hot air balloon? They actually land right up the road often. I don't know if you've noticed this. There's plenty of times I come in early in the morning and I see a hot air balloon landing in a field up the road. And it's just, man, you look up in the sky and it's like so peaceful and it's just floating there. And I look at them and I think, what's wrong with you? Why? Like we have airplanes. They're helicopters. We have regular people going to space and you're relying on balloon technology. I mean, I could take a needle and just poke it and you would, you, it would fall. And I, I mean, it's not like there aren't thousands of birds with pointy beaks flying around. And so if anything, if you take anything away from this, don't go in a hot air balloon. Okay. We were, uh, we were playing with those little, um, I, I don't know what there's lanterns that you light the, the candle and they float and they fly away. And the whole premise is that Warm air is, it, it, you know, it's lighter than, than colder. And so then the, the balloon, when it fills with that, or the, the lantern, when it, it flies off. When he uses this, this phrase in Corinthians, he says it, it just inflates, that knowledge has this inflation aspect to it where, where it makes you feel better than others. And it redirects the mission, and the mission is feeding and inflating more and I mean, this has just been a problem in, in, in the church and the religion overall for, for centuries because there's something about knowing all the things that makes you feel better than all the people and keeps you from loving them the way God wants you to. He says, don't be overwise. Look, if wisdom doesn't produce humility, it stops being wisdom. If wisdom doesn't lessen your view of yourself, if it doesn't create a hunger and desire to love people better, to love them the way that God loved you, it's not really wisdom. If it keeps you guarded and safe and it doesn't let you trust God, it's not wisdom. You've been tricked and you've become overwise. Have you ever been around somebody who is overwise? It's off-putting, isn't it? You don't really want to talk around them. You don't, you're afraid to be wrong around them. It's the arrogant has become destructive. And the sad thing is that it ends for the overwise the same as it does for the foolish. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 6 says, Remember him. This is in the context, remember your creator. Remember him. In this imagery, I'll explain it when we get through it. Uh, remember your creator before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Uh, what's he say? The teacher uses this dramatic imagery. He says if you've got this golden lamp that's, that's filled with oil and it's, and it's lit on fire to, to light up a room and it's just beautiful and it's precious metals, it's, it's hung by a silver cord. He says it's beautiful, it's great as long as the cord is attached. But if the cord is severed, then the lamp spills to the ground, it breaks and it empties and it's, it's nothing. 
He says if you took a, a pitcher to a spring to, to get a drink and the pitcher broke, it's done. If you had a, a, a wheel at a well to lower down a bucket to get water, but the wheel's broken, it's, it's done. All, all of these things are to point out the fact that life is great, it's wonderful until it's done. And the overwise suffers the same fate as the fool. As precious as life is, don't waste it in over-wisdom. One day the body will be separated from the soul and wisdom will just be another thing that vanishes like vapor. When I was in high school, we, uh, we had this uh, social class. I, I forget what it was called. Um, and part of it was once a week, we had to go over to the local retirement home and we would help out for like an hour and uh, I, I remember not really looking forward to that and, and going. Um, and, uh, you know, I was assigned randomly one person in the, the retirement home, and it was my job to write. He, he, lost, he lost the ability to write. You know, his hands were just not able to function anymore. And so I was going to write a letter to his grandchild. And I remember going and doing that. And I, I remembered his name. It was just it was an odd name. It was Edgar Allan Elliott. It's his name you're not going to forget because you think Edgar Allen and then you think Poe, but it's Elliot, so it's different. Um, so I think, okay, you know, I'm just going to remember that. Honestly, like it was just, I was there and I was done and I didn't think about it again until probably, at, I think, five years later and I was in Bible college and I was in my library and I was going through a bunch of old books and uh, one book in particular, it struck me and I look at the name on the book and it's Edgar Allen Elliot. It's this incredible book filled with incredible wisdom written by the same guy who just a few years earlier couldn't write and I had to relay his message for him. There's a part of it where probably none of you are going to read that book. Within a decade, I wonder if that book even exists. And this man had all this knowledge, all this wisdom, and it's gone. Except for the fact that what he did actually isn't gone because everything that he did, he did for Jesus Christ. See, he didn't build his life upon wisdom. He built his life upon Jesus. And what, what the scriptures bring us back to, what the, what the Ecclesiastes, what the teacher brings us back to is, is, uh, is this idea of, yeah, it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone. But while wisdom vanishes, your soul returns to its maker. Your soul returns to its creator. And so Jesus teaching to a crowd that just craves wisdom in Matthew 7, 24, wants them to understand what real wisdom is, what the point of it, what the pinnacle, what the most you can get out of wisdom is. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. You want to know what wisdom is? This is what wisdom is. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against and beat, beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine that does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. The greatest wisdom that's not built on Jesus Christ will not sustain. It will not sustain you in the storms of life and it will not sustain itself in life overall as it will just one day vanish. But the greatest wisdom comes 
Not when we figure out how to play the game of life. The greatest wisdom comes when we press against the person of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus says the wise person digs down deep and and builds upon these words of mine, that he is the foundation for wisdom itself. He is the rock-solid one we depend on. He is the point of this all, that he sustains us even as the rest of wisdom becomes desolate and meaningless. And so we build our life on him. Jesus transcends wisdom. He's one even greater than Solomon, it says. Because Solomon can give us the answers to life, but Jesus alone gives life. And so he gets our trust. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I pray that we press deeply against you in our wisdom. That we would have a humility that recognizes that we are but a breath and our life will be over shortly. And what matters, really, what fully matters is whether or not we had an authentic faith in you, a faith that dug down deep and relied on you as the one who saves us from our sin, the one who gives us the hope of life after death. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we rest against you and not against our wisdom. In your name we pray, amen.